Welcome to another episode of Axe of Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I'm looking out the window now and it's just kinda dark. It's already dark and it's I find that very depressing. Dark clouds are settling over Axe of the Blood God, I guess. <laughs> More like dark night, just because the days are so short up here now. Oh, really? What time does it get dark over there? Um, it's already it's well into getting dark. Like It's like 4 o'clock, probably. Oh, right. It is a lot later there than it is right here. Yes. Because <laughs> there you go. <laughs> recording on opposite ends of the country. I live in the future. Woo. Well, as the nights grow longer, you can cozy up into, around your computer with a... Uh, a mug of hot chocolate and play some Final Fantasy XIV, right? Yeah, I actually uh, started Final Fantasy XIV, and uh, God help me. And actually, this is the perfect season for starting a really meaty uh, online RPG like that, or any RPG at all, really. Wintertime is the best time for playing just these long games that kind of take you out of the, the moment of the day. Because, I mean, let's face it, there's nothing to see. It's black, so <laughs> you may as well, you know, play some games, get under the... I like to get under the blankets, and my cat comes and joins me. And uh, yeah, I've been playing Final Fantasy XIV, and I am a Mikote Lancer, before anyone asks, which people have already asked. So there you go. That's what I am. Is that a Dragoon? Yes. It's uh, the um, kind of the starting point of, of a Dragoon. Uh, when I told Mike, like, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I want to be a dragon, he's like, oh, you're going to die. And uh, he's probably right. I don't think they're very hardy classes, but I just love them. Their armor's so cool. Yeah, I also always pick the Dragoon because they're my favorite class in Final Fantasy, to my detriment. Yeah. Um, since the very beginning, they've never had much in the way of great defense, but they, they're just so cool. Who's the best Dragoon in Final Fantasy history? Kane. Is it Kane? I think it's Kane. It is absolutely Kane. Um, I, I, I will give a shout out to Freya, though. She's pretty awesome. Um, Sid, Sid from Final Fantasy VII was technically a dragoon, right? Yeah, he lit dynamite with a cigarette. He was kind of fun, <laughs> though he didn't really act like one because he didn't have the jump command. No, but he some of his limit breaks were focused around jumps. Yeah, I mean, yes, he jumped in the animation. <laughs> he did. He did jump in the animation, and he did wield a spear. And of course, he had his ship was named the High Wind, which is generally not always, but often the surname for dragoons in uh, the Final Fantasy series. I was a big fan of the Dragoon from Final Fantasy XV. Yeah, well, I can't remember her name, but she was really cool. Ariana, something like that. Yeah. I don't remember if there was a Dragoon in Final Fantasy XII, but it feels like there should have been. There pro- I think there was a class that was similar to Dragoons, but they weren't actually called Dragoons. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, speaking of Dragons, uh, Breath of Fire 2 is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Yes, and by the time this goes up, um, you can read a piece I wrote about Breath of Fire 2, which was actually my first RPG about killing God. And again, this is Mike saying, oh, you mean like every JRPG? And I'm like, yes, you're right. But this was the first time I played a game like that. And it was a real shock because um, if you remember the Super Nintendo uh, back in the day, Nintendo was very strict about censorship, in particular uh, censorship of all themes relating to God and killing and so you have this RPG that's just kind of going full bore on both themes, not just killing and God, but killing God. And we're talking about, like, capital G God. They're not, like, disguising it or anything like that. So I, I think by the time that ESRB came into play, Nintendo was like, do what you want. We don't care anymore. So everyone said, sweet, let's make this, this RPG about, like, children sticking things into God. 
and it was pretty good. <laughs> well, we'll get into that even a little bit more in just a second. But first, Axel the Plugout is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Or if you're enjoying the podcast, can I suggest that you leave us a review over on your podcatcher of choice, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever. Say something nice because we do read the reviews and we always enjoy seeing something nice from you. We, If you want to get in touch with us, you can send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or you can tweet at me at the underscore catbot and Nadia's at Twitter, uh, now at Nadia Oxford. And uh, we also have a newsletter, Nadia I think in the most recent newsletter, you were writing about Final Fantasy XIV, were you not? Yeah, basically, I- I'm just kind of saying, like, uh, hi, I'm playing Final Fantasy XIV. Here's what I'm hi. playing. <laughs> hi, how you doing? <laughs> hi, I'm playing Final Fantasy XIV. Okay, weirdo. <laughs> Going door to door, knocking on the door. New neighbor saying, who the hell are you? Have you heard the good news about Final the- <laughs> Fantasy XIV, sir? Have you had heard the good news about the Twelve? But um, I-, I was kind of going on about how it's actually the-, the story and the characters and the world uh, it's actually definitely one of Square Enix's best, uh, particularly in the Final Fantasy series, which, um, let's face it, some of the newer games uh, have a bit of a loose narrative at times. And uh, a kind of, uh, as much as I liked Final Fantasy XV, uh, sometimes the story was a little bit like, okay, what the hell's going on? But Final Fantasy XIV has a real kind of lived-in feeling, and for good reason, because they basically squashed it with a meteor and rebuilt it. And it's it, it kind of shows it has a, a new but old feeling to it, like a good like a good city with a lot of history behind it. I was having a hard time getting into Final Fantasy XIV when I tried it because when I played it, I was like, "Yeah, it's an MMO, all right." It, it is very much an MMO ass MMO, and um, I did admittedly have some trouble at first really getting into it. But thankfully, I have a lot of friends who are playing it, and they answered my questions whenever I had them, like instantly. And the community is generally good. If you have a question and you Google it, almost certainly someone has asked it and you will find an answer. I'm on record as saying the only MMO I've ever truly enjoyed is Star Trek Online. <laughs> well, that's a good one. You can, like, you know, kill people who are Klingons, I guess. The only reason I liked Star Trek Online was twofold, actually. One was that I got a spaceship Ooh. and I could upgrade that spaceship as time went on. And that was extremely exciting and fun to me mm-hmm. as a Star Trek fan. Um, And then also I could create my own crew that would be sitting on the bridge and everything. It would follow me on away missions. And it was fun to dress them up like little paper dolls and have (laughs) them come with me with their heavily armed phasers and such. And then once I got hit the level cap, there was a brief time where I was heavily involved in the PvP community of Star Trek Online, which was uh, actually a lot of fun. It It wasn't a very good PvP mode at all. It wasn't very well supported at all. But the teeny tiny community around it was like quite excellent, and it was really exciting and satisfying to have uh, to be on Teamspeak, I think it was at the time, uh. and be flying in with a formation of ships, and everybody basically coordinating their attacks and everything, and it's like super intense. And I'm flying around in my giant Odyssey class uh, Enterprise starship, healing everybody. Uh, it, it was good stuff. I, I, I like the sound of that. Is that like, was Enterprise a healing class? <laughs> uh, well, there were three different types. There was the Defiant-type tax ships. Uh-huh. Uh, there were the science ships that were meant to be buffers and debuffers. And then there were the engineering ships, which were basically tanks. Cool. That actually yeah, does so, sound like a lot of fun. 
Everybody wanted to fly around in the Enterprise D, of course, but the Enterprise D actually wasn't that good. <laughs> it's kind of like being a dragoon. It's not a great class, but everyone wants to be it. Yeah, because, but also if you played its little attack ships, they were actually kind of hard to use because you had to perfectly time your burst attacks. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Can you play as like the, the Borg ship? Uh, no, you fought the Borg. Oh, okay. Gotta fight someone, yeah. I guess. Yeah, no, exactly. So yeah, it's actually overall not a terrible MMORPG that, I mean, the community complains about it all the dang time, <laughs> of course. The last time I checked, they were like, ah, this is such a bad game. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, and they're kind of right to kind of slag on Star Trek Online's bad cat. Like, the fact that you could spend $50 buying these ships that are basically pay to win. Uh. Um but at the same time, like, I don't really care because it's free to play. It actually has a lot of kind of fun, well-produced adventures set in the Star Trek universe, has kind of its own storyline going on. It picks up threads from Deep Space Nine and such. And there's just an outrageous amount of content in that game. Um, yeah. How... Every time I go back to it, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I kind of liked this game, but I don't really have time to play through it anymore. No, MMOs, I am learning, are very time-consuming. Uh I forget, how long has Star Trek Online been around? Oh my god, almost a decade at this point? Okay, yeah, it's one of the older ones by far. Yeah, it came out in early 2010. There's a very embarrassing video that I strongly suggest you don't go watch <laughs> of me reviewing it uh, for 1UP <laughs> with Mike Nelson uh, and Alan Johnson. Uh, that concludes with us beaming up for some reason. Don't look that up, people. Don't look it up. Don't, don't go watch listeners. that video. <laughs> we order you not to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, subscribe to our newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday and includes an essay from Nadia and also uh, a roundup of all the RPG news of the week. And you can look forward to that in your ex uh, in your inbox with the blessings of the Blood God. So anyway, back to Breath of Fire 2, which uh, I, I guess to line up with this 25th anniversary, it was one of the four games to come out on Nintendo Switch Online's Super NES collection, along with Super Punch-Out, uh, Star Fox 2, and Kirby Superstar. It was the one RPG of the bunch, interestingly enough. Yeah. Nadia, how does Breath of Fire 2 stack up with the rest of the series? Um, well, here's the thing about Breath of Fire in general, and I think most of its fans will admit this. The games are a huge pain in the ass to play a lot of the time, but they just have such a unique like flair and world and characters that you kind of don't mind if you're really into the into the series. Uh, I still think three is my favorite, uh, but two is probably my second favorite. And one thing I point out in my piece is that like people say to me, "Oh, Nadia, should I play this game?" And on one hand, I say, "Well, sure. If you have Nintendo Online, you have this game for free. Absolutely, give it a try." On the other hand, it's kind of a pain in the ass to play. Uh, one reason is because the encounter rate is just atrocious, and what's even worse is the translation. Like, it's infamously bad. And one thing I was pointing out is how it's really a shame how bad that translation is, because when I think back to the story that game has to tell, I mean, yeah, you know, Kill God stories are, are dime a dozen if you watch anime or play any JRPG, really, but... Um, I think it did a really good – I still think it did a really good job telling that story because it starts off kind of slow and subtle about God being a jerk, like the people who follow his church, the the church of St. Eva. It's not like they're 
you know, corrupt or mean. I mean, they're, they're just normal people living normal lives. And even for much of the game, the church comes off as, as charitable and benevolent. Just as things kind of roll down the hill, you, you realize, okay, this, this church has major problems. But unfortunately, the translation is so bad that it, it's really hard to tell what the game is telling you. And on my personal list of games that I want to see retranslated and re-released and maybe have some quality of life improvements, and Breath of Fire 2 is definitely still up there on the top because I think its story, um, bad translation aside, is still worth, worth like kind of listening to. Does Breath of Fire deserve to be brought back into the modern era or should it stay dead? That's a hard question because I am looking forward to playing it. I am definitely looking forward to, to even just like getting through a significant chunk of it before I get tired of it and and put it away. But that kind of says everything, doesn't it? It's just, it's not the easiest game to play. Um, And it's not even like the Switch has a lot of good tools to kind of help you get through the more tedious parts. It's not like it has like a a speed up or anything like that. It has a, you know, the save states might help you with some of the tougher uh, boss fights. But um, otherwise, I don't know. It's kind of like, I am looking forward to playing it, and I know that a lot of fans are looking forward to playing it, but I am genuinely curious to see, like, what newcomers think. Like, are they going to say, oh my god, this game is terrible, I can't understand what anyone's saying, uh, it, it's slow. Um, I do think it's a very interesting part of SNES history, not just because of the censorship issue, but because of, um, it's a very, still a very good-looking game. You had fully animated sprites, you had fully animated enemies, soundtrack, although it can be a little bit grating at times, is actually very good. So all of that, I think, is is worth preserving and bringing back. But um, I can't guarantee that if you've never played this game before, you're going to be like, oh, wow, this is really cool. It's not like, it's definitely not like Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy VI, which I can say, oh, absolutely, go play that. You have to play that. Uh, it's more of a try it sort of thing. I've always seen it as kind of a third-tier RPG series that has kind of a a cult fandom, but has never really mattered much in the grand scheme of history, which might be really unfairly dismissive. It's just, um, I remember the, I, I remember the ads in game magazines about something about alabaster underwear or something like that. <laughs> I think something, was that asbestos underwear? <laughs> was that what it was? I, I'm, I'm, I think I recall something about that because it's like, well, I guess it would make, it would make like sense because you're talking about uh, fire asbestos. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> that always baffled me growing up. I was like, what? Asbestos underwear. <laughs> and I do know it. the first game was actually uh, published by Square. Capcom still made it, but it was published by Square. And, and I think Ted Woolsey translated that one. So that's a much better translation than 2. It's funny how downhill it went. Uh, if it came to revisiting a classic RPG series, I'd rather Capcom take on Dragon's Dogma than I would uh, Breath of Fire, unfortunately. I haven't even played the first, uh, like, any of the Dragon's Dogma. i got to play that. Oh, the original Dragon's Dogma is great. It's, yeah, I've heard it's a lot of fun. It's kind of dumb, but it's fun climbing on the giant monsters and finding them and everything. And also having the um, the pawns that are helping you out and everything. Yeah, I'm just, I, I'd love to see... Capcom bring back Breath of Fire because 5 was a very, very controversial entry. It was very different from the others, even a different style of gameplay. I was not a huge fan, but I know a lot of people who were. And now people like it, I feel like. Most people do like it, um, but I'm really into Breath of Fire for the more fantasy elements, and that wasn't really a fantasy game. That was a very kind of 
a gritty sci-fi game where, you know, nothing like dragons and swords and magic were really a big part of it. It was more like you were, you as Ryu were deep underground and you had to kind of fight your way back up to the top. But a lot of the, the races and stuff that I like from the original, from the other games aren't, aren't there, except in the most, like, glancing of mentions at times. Um, and Breath of Fire 6 was a mobile-only game that has since been shut down. So, thanks, Capcom? <laughs> All right. Well, moving on, there was another RPG that came out on this release, uh, and that is Crystalis, which yes. is actually a nice addition to the NES library, like definitely the best edition in quite a while. It's a relatively hard-to-find game. Uh, it infamously came out on Game Boy Color, but it was cropped it had problems with cropping and being too zoomed in because of the screen if you're not familiar with crystalis it's a top-down action rpg that kind of resembles zelda i would say that rpg is a little generous in general but you get uh, these elemental swords that can do various things you can cast spells like a telepathy that's going to let you get in touch with people and get hints uh, also I, I guess these little crystals that can surround you and protect you and or hurt enemies. I'm not entirely sure on that front. When um, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy about Crystalis uh, because uh, actually when the rumor first came out that an SNK character was coming to Smash, I said Crystalis guy or GTFO because <laughs> I actually really wanted to see him there. Uh, I don't know if it's Crystalis or Crystalis, but either way, it's uh, a very interesting game. I always thought it was connect. When I was younger, I always thought it was connected to the book, uh, The Chrysalids. Which is uh, thematically, yeah, thematically they're not too too terribly different. Both kind of take place in the future after like you know nuclear disaster mutates things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Although playing it now, I realize okay, it's actually mostly ripping off Miyazaki, like everything did back then. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a very interesting RPG game. I'd actually very much like to see SNK bring the series back sometime. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorites. It's, it's hard, but it is definitely better on NES than the Game Boy Color, where indeed it was so severely cropped that you couldn't see what the hell was going on. Although I will say there was this really amazing, garbled, stupid voice, like, you know, cheering you on when you, when you picked up a, an item, like, oh, you're at the Crystal Sword. And you're like, what the hell did he just say? Why did he take up room on the cartridge to tell me that? So I'm, I'm happy the original is coming back. <laughs> And you also had a chance to talk to a Kawazu in an interview, and he said, stop calling everything an RPG. <laughs> yes. There is an, an interview. I'm paraphrasing him, by the way. Yeah, he didn't say stop that. But he uh, he did mention um, that he, because I asked him, like, are you kind of excited the way that uh, RPGs are becoming much more mainstream? Because, of course, when uh, Romancing Saga and the Saga games in general came out, most of them missed the West because, are, you know, RPGs just weren't popular enough to really justify localizing them. So I said, are you happy that we have this era where, you know, RPGs are localized so much more frequently? And he said, generally, yes, he is very, very excited about that. Although he did say that, you know, er, kind of calling everything an RPG now dilutes the, uh, kind of dilutes the genre a bit. And I think you and I have had discussions about this in the past. Yeah, it was the very first episode of Acts of the Blood God was what what is an RPG? Oh, that's right. Yes, I actually got into a discussion about this with Molly from EGM, mm -hmm. who I would characterize her as a big JRPG aficionado. 
though she says that she comes from a background of watching, I, I think her brother play uh, D&D and that kind of thing. And right. that has like really put her in the mindset of like, it better be turn-based or party-based, you know, like, and it, or it should send you into some kind of arena with like menu commands and all that, or else it's not an RPG. And I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> let's get into sure. this. But I've kind of come to the around to the idea that you an RPG would be a game that is broadly about character customization or building up a character um, versus, say, I don't know, action or puzzle solving or exploration, right? Yeah. So like Breath of the Wild isn't an RPG because it's about puzzle solving and, and exploration. That That is its main focus. Um, I've controversially said that Dark Souls is a questionable one because it's an action game, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Like, its main focus is on action. Yeah, there are, like, very heavy RPG elements that definitely have an impact on that, but I wouldn't exactly say that... Uh, I wouldn't exactly say that customizing your character is the main thrust of the game. Um, and when I say customizing your character or building up your character, they can take place in a variety of different ways. Like, they could include the storytelling decisions that you make in the game and how they impact your character or, or uh, being able to do equipment loadouts or whatever, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, which is like, you know, let's face it, th- that's the saga games through and through. They are very, very, very system-based RPGs. Yeah. And even like, I wouldn't call like Life is Strange an RPG because even though you are making dialogue choices and playing as these kids, the main job of the game is purely to tell a story rather than actually putting you into the shoes of these characters so yeah were you saying that life is strange is an rpg or isn't no i said i i wouldn't call it an art yeah, right right because i need just jason it's a visual novel yeah exactly because otherwise you just call telltale games like their stuff would be okay well that's an rpg too and it's like well not really i, I do think it's useful to sit down and really define the, these games and so that you can kind of know what you're talking about because if you don't like sit down and actually define things and go, oh, well, all the lines are blurred, like then you're just talking very generally about these games. It's useful to be able to have a vocabulary to when discussing these games, in my opinion. I do think it's kind of neat that we live in an era where suddenly everyone wants to be an RPG. Because when I was a kid, you know, RPGs weren't cool. <laughs> now it's cool to be an RPG. Well, they claim they're RPGs because like Skyrim and such sell extremely well, but really they're just bastardized open world action adventure games. Yeah. I'm looking yeah. at you, Assassin's Creed. <laughs> yeah, you, you seem to have uh, issues with Assassin's Creed being called an RPG. It's just shallow, is my problem. Like AC Odyssey wants to be The Witcher 3, but is just as shallow as possible in doing it. And I think that really that big controversy over forcing the ending for your character just tells Mm. you that they aren't in the mindset of making a character. Yeah, you got a good point with that. I forgot about that. Let's continue onward to the big segment of the podcast, and that is our console RPG quest. It's a big one, Nadia. Mm. The PlayStation. Don't go away. Very big. So last week, PlayStation celebrated its 25th anniversary, and it was actually a much bigger deal than I was kind of expecting, Nadia. 
a PlayStation seems to bring a lot of feelings out in people. I mean, yeah. which I think is interesting because I don't think PlayStation necessarily inspires the same level of brand loyalty as Nintendo or even Sega, but people seem to have a lot, possibly because it doesn't have, you know, that those instantly identifiable auteurs like Miyamoto or, you know, Yu Suzuki or uh, Reiko Kodama or people like that. Yeah. But it does, uh, I don't know, like it has games that people have really enjoyed over the years. It's been a very dominant presence in the games industry over the years. It has plenty of like great exclusives. So people seem like really happy to be like, hooray, 25 years of PlayStation. Why do you think it's inspiring so much uh, kind of of emotion and feelings in people? Um, Well, it does have some pretty amazing exclusives, and we'll we'll be talking about a few of them today, I'm sure. But um, I think one reason is it's actually a story I wrote today. I wrote about the uh, the PlayStation blog posted a a thing about like how the the opening chime for the PlayStation was made. Of course, you know you turn on the system, and that's that little chime comes on. And just hearing that just it just brings me right back to to the '90s when. I'm just waiting to load, you know, Mega Man X4 or Final Fantasy VII or Wild Arms or whatever. And um, the thing with PlayStation nostalgia is it's so strange because, yes, I absolutely understand it. And I have my own nostalgia for PlayStation as we are talking about right now. But it's definitely not as strong as Nintendo nostalgia as we have seen Sony has tried to latch on to their nostalgia the same way Nintendo has. But they just can't quite get it. It's like between, you know, the PlayStation All-Stars game, which was kind of middling and the characters were kind of, eh, sure, whatever. And, uh, of course, the PlayStation Classic, which could have been a lot better, but it wasn't. Uh, It's just, they, they just can't hit it out of the park the way Nintendo can. But I still think they are, there is a certain nostalgia that is worth celebrating but I think a lot of it is owed to their third-party exclusives, whereas Nintendo, for many, many years, just coasted by on Mario, Zelda, Metroid, all first-party stuff. Yeah, when it comes to PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale, it's it came out at a time when PlayStation exclusives were a little bit at low ebb. <laughs> just <laughs> a bit. You had Uncharted, right? But, I mean, God of War was definitely on the downside and they were they had Sackboy, which no, let's be honest, nobody gives a crap about Sackboy. Nobody like I, I don't go into any B games and see Sackboy merchandise everywhere. The way I see Mario merchandise or Zelda merchandise or Pokemon. And their other problem was that they tried to turn it into a fighting game. And they're like, this is a fighting game. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Nintendo has always been the secret of Smash Brothers' success is that it's, yeah, it has a very passionate competitive community, and the reason it has a very passionate competitive community is that, A, it's a lot of fun to play, and B, they've just put so much time and effort into making those characters such a beautiful representation of how they were mm. in their original games. It feels like they took, you know, Banjo or whomever, airlifted them straight out of Banjo and dropped them into the game and somehow made them logically work. The amount of detail that goes into the characters in Smash Brothers is just ridiculous, which is what I think was something that was lost on PlayStation uh, All-Stars Battle Royale. But uh, let's say nice things about Sony. Uh, the PlayStation uh, 2, I think, is one of the best and most, uh, is one of the greatest consoles ever made, in my opinion. I think it's right up there with the Super Nintendo, and we'll get there um, a little later. 
Um, it's been home to plenty of amazing series over the years. Uh, I think the DualShock is iconic. Absolutely. My uh, favorite controller, easily. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing controller. Um, so many great games have come through the PlayStation over the years. It's it's done its share to uh, to innovate within the industry. And I people I see people kind of down on the PS4. I actually am a big fan of the PS4. Oh, I love my PS4. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm not playing my Switch. I am playing my PS4. They are two very different systems that fulfill very different niches, and I like it that way. Yeah, uh, Sony has always been very good, with the exception of the PS3, of creating systems that are very powerful and very flexible and just enjoyable to play games on. So, yeah, so there's there's a lot to love about Sony in general. But let's let's get let's get to the original PlayStation. Let's get back to the very beginning. Uh, I I think we've talked about we we covered a little bit about the PlayStation's history during the Sega Saturn era or during the Sega Saturn version of the console RPG quest in which uh, Sega Saturn famously came out and tried to release early and that was going to be their big gambit against Sony and Sony just walked out and announced that their system was $100 less. (laughs) Top 10 anime betrayals, yes. Um, Obviously, everybody knows or you should know perhaps that PlayStation was originally going to be a CD-ROM add-on to the Super Nintendo but then Nintendo backstabbed Sony and went with Philips, which was a huge deal and motivated Sony to go strike out and create their own system, which uh, they did. And they did an amazing job of getting together the, the the developers and everything that was required to make it a success. They managed to hone in on a lot of the technical, uh, a lot of the technical trends of the time um, in creating a, relatively a uh, relatively flexible 3d platform that and making cd-roms work and everything i remember loading times everybody was comparing loading times between the saturn and the playstation back in the day oh how i don't remember like how did that how did that shake out well i think that the playstation barely edged out the sega saturn mm. at the very beginning and then of course people were pointing out how you could play shoot 'em ups during the loading screens and <laughs> that's right not in every game though just some of them so what what is your earliest memory of the PlayStation, Nadia? I think my very earliest memory was uh, probably seeing it in, in some magazine or another, like Game Players or Game Pro, and looking at that, you know, next to the uh, the Saturn and Nintendo's uh, system, which was still a big, huge mystery at the time, and saying, who the hell's going to buy a system from Sony? Who cares? And that turned out to be the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember the first time hearing about the PlayStation was during a roundup of all of the next-gen stuff. So it was talking about Ultra 64. It was talking about Sega Saturn and Sega Mercury, I want to say, which I think became yeah. the 32X. And then it had like an that. entry about the PlayStation, and it just said, security around this system is tighter than Fort Knox, so we don't know anything about it. And I'm like, eh, PlayStation, whatever. <laughs> Why does and that be secure? Who cares? And then it came out, and I a friend of mine got one almost right away. And so I went over to their house, and I remember playing a lot of Twisted Metal and mm. enjoying that and thinking, oh, this is pretty cool, yeah. But I didn't have any, like, strong feelings about the PlayStation, and actually I thought the graphics were kind of ugly compared to the Super Nintendo. They kind of are, to be honest with you. I mean, they were. Like, they were muddy, 
and like the 3D aspect was cool, but at the same time, it's just they're they're never going to look quite as good. Though I mean, I thought Twisted Metal was heck was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, but I was such a a Nintendo fangirl that I was just going to automatically be dismissive of the PlayStation in general. Yeah. So I was all in on the N64. And so was I, uh, which turned out to be a mistake for RPG fans like ourselves. But um, yeah, I was, um, I can't remember the first time I played a PlayStation. I think the first time I looked at a PlayStation and realized, oh, maybe I've made a mistake, was a game store in a mall nearby was playing the anime opening for Wild Arms. And uh, it was also playing, like, the anime openings for, like, Mega Man 8. So I was like, oh, you can't do that on Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. I remember when Final Fantasy VII and Parappa came out was when I started to turn around on it. Though I thought Parappa was dumb. <laughs> yeah, I, I never got to play Parappa back then. But uh, I had a friend who would tell me about this game where, like, you have to rap to go to the washroom. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, I missed both the PlayStation and the N64, more or less, because, so some friends of mine had an N64, so I would go over to their friends, or to their house, and we would play, there would be parties, and we were playing, you know, Star Fox 64, and various party games, and I loved that it had four controllers. That was cool. And the PlayStation wasn't as much of a, a party machine, so I didn't see it being played as much, and... My parents, uh, I was at the time where, you know, I'm in middle school. I don't have any money. My parents aren't going to get me a console. So I was playing on PC. I was mainly playing Command and & Conquer and TIE Fighter and all of those games at the time. And then circa, I want to say, 1999 or, or so, um, I, I think I've told this story in the past. Um, I played Final Fantasy VI on the Super Nintendo. I loved it. And... A friend of mine said was okay with loaning me their PlayStation and a copy of Final Fantasy VII, and I think that was one of the like most mind blowing moments I've ever had playing a video game. Yeah, the, playing Final Fantasy VII for the first time was pretty special. It was just um, yeah, we're talking about how three D graphics tended to be ugly, but something about the cinematography in Final Fantasy VII is just it's still excellent, even though yeah, you you have some pretty primitive polygon builds for the enemies and the characters, but. Um, I, I have no complaints about the way the world is presented. And then a little later, I got a copy of Metal Gear Solid, and my mind <laughs> was completely blown a second time. And that was the end of Cat. Because that was the first time I ever played what you would consider maybe a AAA blockbuster type game, where you had the, the in-engine cutscenes and the set pieces, and and it just worked top to bottom so well that I... Like, I look back on the original Metal Gear Solid now, and it's just like, it. obviously it's hard to see, but, I mean, there just weren't games like Final Fantasy VII and, and Metal Gear Solid at those times. Like, they were very no. new experiences. They were they were very new, and I remember um, it was definitely a, a factor in the war that made people say, like, oh, Nintendo was very kiddie, whereas, you know, PlayStation's for grown-ups. Anyway, I feel like we've talked about Final Fantasy VII a ridiculous amount on this podcast, so I don't want to focus it all around Final Fantasy VII and recalling the PlayStation. I, I think, obviously, it's a gigantic part of the history. Mm -hmm. um, Square going from Nintendo to Sony, you want to talk about top 10 anime portrayals, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I would recommend, um, if you have not, read Matt Leone's uh, oral history of Final Fantasy VII, absolutely do so, because it, it is fascinating. So obviously, 
when Final Fantasy came out here, it opened the door and opened the floodgates for these RPGs that had never come over to America before. And it was, and it, everybody was discovering all of this stuff for the first time, and including myself. I, mm-hmm. I was discovering all of these games. I was very much in the mindset of like, okay, if it has Square on it, I'm going to buy it. I know and that mindset. That, I'm familiar with that mindset. That resulted in me buying games like Saga Frontier. You want to talk oh, about no. Kawazu? There you go, right? <laughs> yeah, the only way I remember uh, Saga Frontier is just the Penny Arcade comic where Saga Frontier is calling out to uh, Gabe and saying, hey, buy me. And Gabe's like, I don't know, Saga Frontier. Everyone says you're really bad. It's like, but look at these graphics. It was quite pretty, wasn't it? It was a very, there were some very, very pretty games. Like, there's some excellent sprite based games on the um, PlayStation. It was that time where you would walk into, it was still that time where you'd walk into a store and you would discover games you've never heard of before and Mm -hmm. you would look on the back and you would see just the screenshots and be like, oh, that's good. Yeah, um, that's how I got lured into, I think, Legend of Ligeia and I was like, oh God, I hate myself. And I would just go to the local games uh, spot, stop, uh, because I had money for the first time (laughs) and I was spending that money like a crazy person. and. that, that's just such a great time of, of your life when you have a part-time job and you don't really have any responsibilities, so you just blow all your money on, on games. That was a good time to be alive. That was what I was doing. Same. And I was just picking up games just like willy-nilly. I was picking up games like Star Ocean and Threads of Fate and Chrono Cross. Uh, basically, anything, if it was Square-related or RPG-related, I was going to buy it. Oh, good for you. You just kind of dove right into it headfirst. Sure did. And I had a lot of great experiences, a lot of confusing experiences. To this day, like, I think we've talked about Vagrant Story on this podcast. I I don't remember the exact episode where we were discussing it, but I remember thinking it looked amazing. Oh, yeah. But then I got to a boss that I literally couldn't damage, and then I quit, and I never played it again. And that's pretty much the Vagrant Story story. <laughs> and it, it's a shame because it actually is a really interesting um, game. And again, if you want to uh, have a, a really good read, uh, we have a piece about the localization of that game because it has an excellent localization by Alexander O. Smith. Um, but I was very much in the same boat where, okay, this is going great. Oh, well, why can't I damage this enemy? And it, there's a whole system about like upgrading and reforging your you know, your weapons and stuff. But even back then, it was a little bit difficult to get the help you needed. Like, whereas now, if you come into a game that's that obtuse, you just go on Twitter and have your answer in two seconds. Uh, it wasn't so easy back in, you know, the olden days. So I, I've made some observations about the PlayStation. And one of the big ones, I think, is that it benefited to a large degree from the explosion of anime in the West. Oh, that yeah. was happening at that exact moment which also helps fuel JRPGs. Yeah. Um, you, it's actually funny that you mentioned the anime explosion because I, I, have a, I feel like before Pokemon really caused everything to take off, there was a time when um, Sony or whoever still didn't want to have any anime on their game covers. So we, we got some of the best slash worst game covers of all time, like the original Suikoden, for example, the original Castlevania Symphony of the Night is still a tragedy. Uh, even Breath of Fire 3's cover is just literally just a sword and fire, and it's just like clip art central. Yeah, and then it really benefited games like Xenogears because everybody was watching game. Well, I mean, they were watching Evangelion at the time, and <laughs> Xenogears was Evangelion the game. Yeah, yeah, two great tastes that go together in a confusing way. So, I mean, people 
wanted out of their games, I guess, to be as confusing as possible. I remember... <laughs> That's why they're deep. That's I remember you know they're deep. I remember not being able to understand anything that was happening in Final Fantasy VII being a selling point because it was clearly way beyond me. No, of course. It, it, it's just high art, Cat. You know what? I Every time I go back to Final Fantasy VII, I, I always forget what it's about. And then I remind myself, I play through it, and I'm like, oh, okay, I have to use Wikipedia to kind of smooth out the more jagged edges because of the bad translation. I'm like, okay, I will remember this time. And then I instantly forget. So why did Sony win? Um, I I have some ideas, Nadia. Mm -hmm. Um, Sega was just shooting itself in the foot all the time. (laughs) Yeah, Sega was kind of a no... Sega just kind of killed itself. So that, that accounts for them. And it was around this time that Nintendo's frankly, really bad uh, business practices from the past 15 years finally came around to bite its bite it, you know? Yeah, it bit it with interest. Yeah, because, I mean, they racked up a lot of, you know, ill will when they were throwing their weight around because they owned everybody. And the second that developers had an opportunity to go to a company that had way lower standards of quality... Because, I mean, Sony was willing to release practically anything. And they did. And they did. Like, there was so much shovelware on the PlayStation that it was ridiculous. Uh, What do you think is the console with the most shovelware? Is it the Wii, actually? I would have to say it's the Wii, but the PlayStation is is no slouch in that department. Yeah, the PS1 just had so much of it. Because this is obviously pre-mobile phones, so all of the very, very, very bad licensed games were coming out on it as well. Yeah, and it's also like another reason why developers went over to the PlayStation is because it was much cheaper to develop for CD back then than it was for a cartridge game. And games that can't, and games that were bad at that time were really bad. They were really, like they were really so terrible. bad. Because it's like not only do you have to deal with bad graphics, bad sound, you also usually the the worst games had the worst load times too. It was just it was just pain, all pain. So you had this avalanche of games coming out all the time. And it also managed to get some of the biggest developers in Japan, which gave it, you know, instant credence. I mean, it was a Japanese company, one of the biggest. So that was a big factor. I mean, Sony was, you know, the Microsoft of its time stepping in, right? It was Mm -hmm. like we had had previously arcade developers and startups that had been built entirely around video game consoles or toy companies like Nintendo coming in. And this was like a full-blown juggernaut, uh, the Walkman, the creator of the Walkman. They were coming in and they were making game consoles, right? So that lends it instant credence over in Japan. And then you also have some of the best developers just immediately throwing their hats into the ring between uh, Capcom and Konami and uh, Square, of course. That was a big one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Sony itself didn't have a huge number of great exclusives, but... That didn't maybe matter as much at the time? No, that definitely didn't matter. Um, and I think another thing that maybe really helped Sony vault uh, is because uh, Yamauchi, brilliant, brilliant businessman, but he was getting really arrogant by the end of his tenure at Nintendo. And I think that can be reflected in the fact, uh, again, go back to the, the oral history written by Matt Leone. And um, there's a story where Square actually went up to Nintendo and said, look, we want to develop for you guys, but your system, not, not only is it cartridge-based, that's one problem, but compared to the PlayStation, it is severely underpowered. And, to, you know, that's another problem altogether. Like, you really got to consider making uh, the support CDs. And they just flat out said, no, we don't need to. We don't have to. And so Square said, all right, we're packing up our stuff and we're leaving. And 
maybe that's when Nintendo realized, okay, well, this is serious, but it's a little bit too late by then. Do you think CDs, the whole CD thing is overblown? Um, Everybody always, that's always the narrative is that Sony won because of CDs. I think, obviously, it didn't win because of CDs exclusively because otherwise, you know. There are good looking games on the N64. Like, I would say, I would say Star Fox 64 looks as good as almost anything on the PlayStation. Yeah, I agree. But um, again, when you're talking about how much cheaper it was to manufacture games on the PlayStation, you were paying more for N64 games, even mm. if you were paying a little bit less for the system. But at $299, uh, it's not like the, the, the PlayStation was going to destroy your pockets, especially since that was an era where CD systems were quite still quite expensive. And, uh, I mean, the play, the Saturn was three ninety nine. So to come out with an, uh, an, a console that's two ninety nine, extremely affordable. And this is still a time when people were actually still interested in using, uh, you know, CD, uh, you know, just playing game, uh, sorry, playing music on CDs as well. So which the PlayStation, we're not talking about like kind of a, the added benefit of a DVD player, but having a CD player, that wasn't, that wasn't a bad thing at all. So. I can see why people just kind of leapt onto the PlayStation and then like the Sony really threw itself into the marketing campaign for Final Fantasy 7 and, you know, just dunked on Nintendo repeatedly with it. So <laughs> that probably helped their case as well. Yeah, it gets back to where the Sega Genesis, why it succeeded. Exactly. Was that it managed to cast itself as being way cooler than Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Nintendo was seeing as for the kids, it was a kiddie system. It's what you get if you're a baby. And Sega was for, I don't know, teenagers or something. And Sony took that to another level because, in part, because it could support things like FM, well, not FMB, like, but CG cutscenes, which looked really cool at the time. And also, like, voice acting and its games were grittier. And they, they had Barrett yelling, damn. <laughs> they did, yes. And uh, so people were like, oh, like the PlayStation, that's that's the game. That's a system for adults. I mean, this Nintendo 64 is for little kids. That's what it really did kind of seem, to be fair, like the, the video games were for adults for the first time. I mean, you know, obviously the Sega Genesis was seen as cool, but as you said, it was really, really more marketed towards young teenagers. Whereas uh, the PlayStation, yes, you had Final Fantasy VII. Yes, you had Resident Evil. You had, again, Metal Gear Solid. Those are very, not just like, you know, cool games, the way Sonic was cool, but very cinematic games. And also fairly mature. A game like Resident Evil 2 was not necessarily that something you wanted little Bobby playing exactly. you know, at the age of five, whereas, you know, little Bobby could be playing uh, Mario Kart 64 or something. Right, but that just made it all the more intriguing to everyone, Not like especially when you're a little kid and you're like, oh, I want to see what mommy and daddy are playing. Oh, God, there's blood everywhere. And, of course, the PlayStation just benefited from just a tidal wave of freaking games, uh, licensed games, uh, RPGs. I mean, you name it. I mean, even before Final Fantasy VII, you had quite a few RPGs, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you listed a whole bunch of them. You listed Wild Arms. You listed Ark the Lad. You listed uh, Vandal Hearts. Uh, Persona got Persona. it Persona, yeah, that's where it got to start. Spinoff of Shin Megami Tensei. Uh, Beyond the Beyond, which uh, was described, uh, I mean, it looks kind of pretty. It looks a little like Suikoden in some ways, but also it's described as like just a horrendous slog of an RPG. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the thing about RPGs. I I feel like you're kind of talking like kind of like BC and AD. It's like before Final Fantasy VII and after Final Fantasy VII, because I feel like there was a major shift after that. Um, Games like Wild Arms, uh, as much as I, I love Wild Arms, there is a certain you know, 
there's a certain like I don't know what to do with this a certain sense of we don't know what to do with this game because you well, have it's these... like halfway between exactly. the transition right because yeah. games were being defined at that time as to whether they could make the transition from 2D to 3D mm-hmm. which I mean the games that could like Mario and Zelda went on to live as blockbuster franchises to this day and the games that could not which I mean Mega Man Legends like has a great fan base these days and is fondly remembered i know that you're a huge Mega Man legends fan yeah i'm a fan but the general the general opinion at that time was that Mega Man was not a series that had made the leap successfully uh i think like i remember it reviewing like fairly well it definitely wasn't like bubsy 3d or, or Earth i remember Gym 3D. the reviews being bad really yeah no, I, I remember them being okay um eh. if nothing else like the original i, I dismissed maybe. it because of the bad reviews oh really no i i well, I actually bought Mega Man Legends 2 because there was a guy I worked with who I didn't like, and he was, like, going to buy it. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? No, you're not. And I bought it instead. So, But I ended up really liking it. The first time I heard somebody say something nice about it was when Parrish was beating the drum for Mega Man Legends. Oh, yeah. Parrish. Parrish is a big drum beater for that. <laughs> but uh, getting back to Wild Arms, I mean, it was the perfect example of a game that tried to split the difference. Yes. Um, you had the the overworld sprites, which frankly didn't look much better than a 16-bit game. And then you had these really, really low-poly battle scenes, which just, uh, it, they're interesting to look at because you can see um, Media Vision was playing around a lot with, with lighting, which was a very new idea back then, a very new thing you could play with. But um, otherwise, it was like, oh, God, um, yeah. It, it, it's just as, as an example, you can summon enemies in that game. Like, you know, there's a dragon character you can summon. And um, it, at, when I first saw it, I said, oh, that's pretty cool. But then, like... Final Fantasy VII came along with Bahamut. <laughs> it just, like, just blew it out of the water. And then, of course, post-Final Fantasy, you had the games that were trying to be... that put a big premium on really cool cinematic attacks. I don't like to use that word when it comes to video games very much, but, I mean, they were non-interactive experiences that put a premium on being really pretty, I guess. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And they um, looked amazing! They did, to be honest with you. Uh, I still love a lot of the summon animations in Final Fantasy VII, but not enough that I, you know, am happy that I can't skip them. We were talking about how uh, Sony doesn't didn't really have a ton of good first-party exclusives at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. It tried to make its own Final Fantasy in Legend of Dragoon. <laughs> I, I can't laugh at Legend of Dragoon because I've never played it, but I have heard some of the, you know, the vocal songs, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is a... This is a JRPG that belongs in the 90s, all right. <laughs> Have you ever played uh, Legend of Dragon? I sure did. I bought it at launch. Oh, oh why? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a really remarkable RPG in that it looked like it came like directly after Final Fantasy VII, but it was like a, what, 2000? Something, 2000. Something crazy like that? I thought it was ugly. It is ugly. Because the characters were really stiff and the background art wasn't very good. And the only time it looked good was when they were doing the transformations into the actual dragoons. Yeah, um, it, it it basically looked like Final Fantasy VII just uh, five years later or something. And I was becoming media savvy, so I was like, this is just a ripoff of Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> and you were correct. They're using all the tropes from Final Fantasy VII even. Like the story, it was a story kind of the same with like some guy like who was abandoned in front of a bar and Tifa decided to take him home. I remember that there was, I just remember that there was a scene where you're fighting in the arena 
and you're fighting a bunch of enemies, but then the boss shows up, or like the, one of the main villains shows up and kicks your butt. Oh, yeah. And I was like, problem, I swear right? to God, I've seen this before. It's to to its credit, it's in every RPG and not just Final Fantasy VII. I know, but <laughs> Final Fantasy VII was my basis for understanding everything at the time. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. Yeah, you have a point there. Because I remember looking at like certain tropes in Final Fantasy VII and saying, they're just ripping us off from Final Fantasy VI. Uh, I'm going to have a controversial opinion. Oh, no. Um, in some ways, it was the, the golden era of RPGs on console. And in other ways, I think that RPGs got worse in some ways. Yeah, I, I, I do understand where you're coming from because um, I feel like like what we got on the SNES as Western fans, it was the cream of the crop. It was often the best of the best, barring like, I don't know, Legend of the Seven Stars or whatever that horrible game was called. But we talked about the shovelware available on the the PlayStation, and that applied to RPGs too, absolutely, because since, you know, Final Fantasy VII made a million dollars, everyone thought their RPG full of anime stereotypes could be the next best thing. So they just brought it over, usually with pretty shoddy translations half the time. I feel like the difference between the Super Nintendo and the PlayStation is really evident in Chrono Cross, between Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross. So... Chrono Cross, don't get me wrong, is a beautiful game with a beautiful mm-hmm. soundtrack and everything. But whereas Chrono Trigger was this beautiful, like, elegant game that felt really tight and moved at a really good pace, except for, like, one section, Chrono Cross felt huge and bloated and almost staggering a little bit under the weight of trying to put out these, like, high-level graphics. Yeah, um, it was definitely one of those really late-era PlayStation games that struggle a bit under the, um, the load of what it has to carry. So I understand where you're coming from. Although I still I still love Chrono Cross by all means, but as I've said many, many times and will continue to say, it's just not a good sequel to Chrono Trigger. I played Chrono Cross way before I ever played Chrono Trigger. Oh, that's right. I guess you would have. So you would you would have a really interesting perspective on that. Because um, I, I that means you weren't like me. You couldn't get mad at the fact that it just killed off the cast. Yeah. I knew about Chrono Trigger by this time, of course, because mm-hmm. I had a Super Nintendo and I was following Square games avidly. But I did not play Chrono Trigger because it was too too expensive. It was it very expensive been, yeah. to acquire been. a copy of Chrono Trigger. So I bought Chrono Cross going, well, I mean, if Chrono Trigger is so good, as everybody is saying, then Chrono Cross must be even better because it's on the PlayStation. And, you know, as I was playing it, I was definitely enjoying it. There was a lot going on with the the color-coded uh, battle system. It was interesting, yeah. Yeah, like you had the white and the black, and I, were there other... Was it just white and black, or were there other different types? Oh, there was, there was a whole bunch, a whole rainbow whole of spectrum. colors. Yeah, yeah. And if you ask me now, hey, Nadia, how does that battle system work? I'd be, oh, I don't know, because I sure as hell don't remember. Um, it did do some interesting things that I still appreciate, like uh, the fact that I can't remember exactly how it worked, but you would get to a point where you would get to a certain section in the game, and not only would it not force you to fight lower rank enemies, but it would make it would make it completely useless for you to even do so. So you just didn't even have to stress about uh, even thinking about you know getting that little bit of experience because that little bit of experience just wasn't there. I remember it moving at a very slow pace. It is a slow game, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which is like in a direct contrast. To Chrono Trigger. Yes, absolutely. Chrono Trigger is a very... It's definitely one of the most well-paced games I've ever played. Yeah, so I got to the point where you turn into the villain for some reason. I still don't get why. And I was just don't like, ask me. 
And it kept going. That whole section where you're the villain just kept going. And I was like, uh, I don't want to play this anymore. And I stopped. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're the furry now who's actually served his <laughs> father. And for some reason, I'm still Yeah, the, the cat and... villain didn't really hit me as hard as Sephiroth. <laughs> no, uh, the cat villain was um, a, a villain, I guess. Uh, yeah. But Chrono Cross was really the, when Square was at the peak of its powers, because this was during the Summer of Adventure which was a like relatively famous promotion where a whole bunch of RPGs came out. A lot of mediocre RPGs came out, like Threads of Fate. Sorry, Threads of Fate fans. Um, and they also released Chrono Trigger that summer, and everybody was rushing out to buy it because it was the big new square joint. And, of mm-hmm. course, Chrono Trigger fans are super excited. And now I understand why they're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny. Chrono Cross, I played it much, much later. Um, cause a friend of mine, I don't know why I didn't buy it, but a friend of mine loaned it to me and somehow I, I don't understand how this happened to this day. I have like three disc ones of Chrono Cross and no disc fours. And that was a thing that I still looking back on these old games. I'm like, I'm glad I don't have that anymore because I really hated having to get up and switch your, your CDs and losing those CDs and finding, Oh, where's where's disc two for Final Fantasy seven? Oh, it's in my Guns and Roses user illusion case for some reason. I don't know. So that was a thing. That's a thing I'm glad I don't have to maintain anymore. Anyway, my point about RPGs in some ways getting worse on the PlayStation was not only were they kind of more bloated, they were really focused on flash mm-hmm. and really good graphics versus kind of depth and on the one hand, storytelling depth, and the other, on the other hand, uh, mechanical depth. And I think at, at this time, the PC was really owning that space. This was during the, the heyday of Black Isle Studios. This was when BioWare was starting to get its start. This was the time of, you know, Fallout and Planescape Torment and Baldur's Gate 2. And I, I think those are all really tremendous RPGs. Um... Whereas on on the PlayStation, a lot of these games are kind of tweeners that are fondly remembered, but not the most enjoyable to play these days. Um, I mean, you could go back and play Chrono Cross, I, I guess. Like, that is a very playable one, but Legend of Dagoon, definitely not so much. Uh, I would say Vagrant Story is kind of like, eh. Your Vagrant Story is not without an FAQ. Don't bother without an FAQ. Xenogears is just a freaking mess. Xenogears is hilarious. I mean, I still haven't played it, but isn't like part two just a bunch of just like a text dump because they couldn't afford to finish it or didn't have time or something yeah well the entire second half the final back half is one of the main characters Saiten, telling Mm -hmm. the story well uh and then you see like little like and this is what happened and this happened and you're like well that looks like a really cool dungeon that i'm not exploring (laughs) (laughs) can i play it no it's like and then they fought a boss and then it just like cuts into you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of like when uh professor frank is showing the little poppy toy to the kids in the kindergarten is like trying to explain how the physics work and little kid says can i play it like no can't appreciate it on the same level i can uh, Dragon Quest Seven came out on the PlayStation. Notably, it was the only Dragon Quest to come out on the PS1. Yeah. Whereas, uh, which was a big change from the NES and the SNES. So, okay, first of all, the PlayStation got Dragon Quest. That's a big. That's a big. Deal that was a own. huge coup right there. That was like definitely Final Fantasy level, if not more. And this was pre. Uh, this was pre the merger between Square and uh, and Enix. So mm-hmm. Enix was a different company, and. So they had their whole different thing. 
And um, actually, after they had kind of failed to break out in, in the U.S., they had more or less shut down in America, if I recall correctly. And yeah. then the PlayStation was what prompted them to try and make a comeback. And the Valkyrie profile was like a big part of that, actually. And I've talked, you know, ad nauseum about how much I still, uh, how much I love Valkyrie Profile, a game that really still continues to hold up because of its of its graphics and because I'd it's, love a chance to love it, but I can't. It's really ambitious uh, graphics, and it's very hard to find and play these days. Even though you can get it on iOS, you can play the PSP version if you really want. But uh, Dragon Quest Seven was the only one to come on a PlayStation, and it's kind of symptomatic of what ailed a lot of PlayStation RPGs uh, for want of you know, having really high quality graphics, it just tried to get really big and it was really big. Maybe too yeah. big. Too it, bloated. It was a little bit too bloated. Uh, I think even the 3DS game that came out later uh, really tried to cut down on the bloat as best as it could, but it was still a long ass game. And uh, you mentioned the graphics, but I don't remember the game on the PlayStation looking that good. Oh, no. It definitely wasn't. Like, it was. I remember when it came out, it came out in like 2000. Yeah, it was a late release as well. It was a very late release, but it looked like an early PlayStation game. Yeah, absolutely. And it certainly couldn't hold up next to, you know, Metal Gear Solid and Final Fantasy VII and, and other and Final Fantasy VIII games that were kind of dominating at the time. And it was defiantly old school in a time where everybody expected a game like Final Fantasy VII. So mm-hmm. it didn't have a lot of success here. I, don't, I can't really speak for japan but it's tended to be regarded like it has its defenders but it tends to be regarded as a lower tier dragon quest game for sure yeah um if i were to rank the dragon quest games like on the spot i would not put seven near the top that's for sure (laughs) um when you look at some of the rpgs some of the rpgs that managed to get their start on the uh playstation i already mentioned persona which uh in I mean, it kind of famously had a weird localization. You had a lot of weird localizations here where they changed yeah. they changed the characters. Yeah, they changed the characters. Like, um, I don't remember if they made a black character white or a white character black, but it was kind of a weird swap. Yeah, it was definitely a weird swap for sure. Uh, the Tales of series really started to get going on the PlayStation. I forgot about that. Yeah, Tales You're of right. Fantasia... Uh, came out on the Super Nintendo, but yes. it was Tales of Destiny that made it out into the U.S. And it definitely had a lot. It had its share of fans. It was definitely a cult series. I had a friend who was just a freaking maniac for <laughs> <laughs> Some people are just maniacs for Tales games. Yeah, well, he was just a gigantic Tales of Destiny in particular, that game. Because it was kind of like Slayers a little bit in terms oh, of it look be. and feel. And he was a giant Slayers fan as well. Uh, okay, yeah. If you've never played the original Tales of Destiny, it was, I mean, it, like so many of these games, it looked like a 16-bit RPG that had been thrown onto a CD. Yes. <laughs> I know the visual quite well. Yeah. and But it was kind of an action RPG, so you had the side-to-side combat a little bit like Valkyrie yeah. Profile. Um, yeah. I had a hard time getting into it, but I mean, like it certainly had its fans and then Tales of Eternia came out and then so on. And then it really, really took off in the PS2 slash GameCube era with Symphonia and whatnot. But mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But so, yeah, um, when you look back on the original PlayStation, you see a mix of games that were still seem kind of rooted in the 16-bit era, like the the Lunar Silver Star Story ports or Beyond the Beyond or 
the Suikoden games, right? I mean, I, I think Suikoden 2 is the best PlayStation 1 RPG, bar none. Um, yeah, yeah. It's the one that holds up the best for sure. Yeah, and it looks fantastic too. And then you have the games that are trying to be extremely cinematic, like Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9, and Chrono Cross, and Legend of Dragoon, and everything. And maybe they and are telling these big, sweeping stories that have a ton of ambition and everything. So it's, it's an interesting combination, I think. But what I'm kind of wondering, Nadia, is what PlayStation RPGs do you think hold up the best? Oh, we mentioned uh, Suikoden 2 already. Um, mm. I still think that holds up really well. Uh, and I would say, I still think Final Fantasy VII holds up. I honestly, I go back to it every once in a while and I still enjoy it. Uh, those are probably my, my top two in my heart. Um, I, I'm trying to think of like, okay, well, what are some, you know, continuations of series that I love? But it's like, oh, what about Legend of Mana? Oh no, that was terrible. Okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I loved uh, Breath of Fire 3. It's not perfect by any means, but I def- it is my favorite Breath of Fire, as I said earlier. So those are sort of the games that on the PlayStation that I still go back to once in a while when I want something to kind of remind me of the best of that era. Uh, I think the Front Mission games hold up pretty well, actually, on the PlayStation. I never played them. Yeah, they're really cool. Uh, they remind me of Mech Warrior, but with an anime bent and tactics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I already mentioned that Xenogears was kind of a kind of a mess, but I think it still can be kind of fun to play as long as you take that into context. What happens if you like, okay, let's say you play through the first half of the game and then you just decide, oh, I'm going to look up the, the second half on YouTube. Would you miss literally anything? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because there's still battles and everything like the Omni Gears show up in the second, ta- second half. Okay. So it's just like long stretches of story, yeah. but you'd still get to participate once in a while. I think the thing that people are really taken by with Xenogears is just, you know, the the pure ambition of it. Like, it's it wants to be so big. And as a result, it, it gets a little lost in itself, and it has a lot of dangling threads, and it can be pretty plodding at times. But it's, I mean, I can't think of many RPGs quite like it, you know? It's really different. Yeah, it's... Um... I do remember it made a huge impression when it came out to the point that you had people on the internet saying, oh, you know, this is real culture. This is what Japan has. And, you know, we should be teaching this in schools. <laughs> teaching oh it instead God. of religion. God. I mean, that's what people were thinking, right? It's like, oh, I mean, these so many of these RPGs were taking aim at religion at the time, right? Oh, yeah, so like, yeah. I mean, it, you, you were talking about Breath of Fire 2 being the first RPG where you kill God. There you go. Yeah, like uh, at least... My first time. For all I know, Japan's probably been doing it forever. But yeah, Xenogears was an extension of that, just a um, better soundtrack. I didn't used to think that Final Fantasy VII held up, but I think it holds up better now. Yeah, it was definitely a, kind of a journey of exploration um, in terms of, you know, what I feel in my soul. Because when I was younger and more cynical, I would always say, oh, you know, the Final Fantasies on the Super Nintendo were the best. Uh, you know, Final Fantasy VII was just a lot of flash. Can't hold, I can't hold a candle anymore. But no, Final Fantasy VII... Um, it still holds up quite well. I think it holds up better than 8 and 9. Um, I'm, I'm always on the fence as to whether Final Fantasy Tactics holds up. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are people who are just freaking wild for it, but I wouldn't necessarily play the original PlayStation version. I'd probably play the PSP game. Yeah, I would say I would definitely choose the PSP game over the original. Yeah, and Final Fantasy Tactics, um, I think I might have told this story before. I saw it in stores and avoided it because I was scared of Tactics games. <laughs> 
Wow, that's like a fish saying, I'm scared of water. I know, right? Well, and it was sometime, it was, it was a few years later when I finally picked up Advanced Wars and we went like, hey, I, these these tactics games are actually pretty fun. And yeah, then, they're actually pretty cool. Yeah. And then I played Fire Emblem, and then I picked up Final Fantasy Tactics for the GBA, and I was like, oh, it's going to be like this. And it wasn't like that. So it took me a little while longer to properly get into Final Fantasy Tactics. But once That's I did, right. I was like, all right, this is a good game. The GBA version was quite different, wasn't it? I liked it. I, I think it gets a bad rap. Yeah, but, I've, I've heard, like, mixed reviews on it. Uh and continuing my quest to chronicle every Super Robot Wars game, uh, this is actually kind of a turning point for the series, was the original PlayStation, because that was when Super Robot Out Wars Alpha came out, and it was handled by a different developer than the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo games. And mm-hmm. it felt, it was the first one to really feel a lot more like how Super Rob- Robot Wars generally feels. And it was a big, sprawling, ongoing series. It, it started a whole new series story. It has a lot of classic anime in it, like Macross and, and Victory Gundam and God Only Knows. And it sort of actually feels like the Super Robot Wars games that have come out since, including Super Robot Wars Z, have tried to kind of copy the excellence of Super Robot Wars Alpha and Alpha Gaiden. So mm-hmm. uh, I actually think that if you have the tolerance for kind of slow loading times and the lack of like quality of life issues consider playing alpha guide n which has a terrific story and so much anime nostalgia that it's like completely ridiculous i actually am a big fan of alpha guide n yeah but then i go back to like playstation i'm like oh god these loading times (laughs) it's not so bad i think the main problem is that when you go into a a cutscene watching the the robots attack things uh in the ps4 games you can skip them or just speed them up on the playstation one either you have to set ahead of time that you don't want to watch the actual animation or you just have to sit through it people really were proud of their animations back then not that i blame them but they were Mm. like okay i've seen them can i skip now no so when you look back on the playstation what did it mean for rpgs in your opinion it was the beginning of, of really watching everyone else start to enjoy rpgs and i found that really satisfying um, I know that, the, you know, compared to the Super Nintendo, there was a lot of kind of trash. But when the alternative was, you know, just growing up loving RPGs and seeing so many good games locked away in Japan because they couldn't come to America because it just wasn't popular here. Um, I don't know. I feel like I, I was happy with what the PlayStation accomplished. Not to mention the PlayStation was kind of my first, like, personal system where I had it for myself entirely and it was like in my room and I could play these RPGs for as much as I want for as long as I wanted and that really kind of helped me kind of get really in depth with these games and really experience them for myself and it felt really good so I feel like this is when RPGs kind of became something for everyone I have a lot of nostalgia looking back on the original PlayStation because it's I it was definitely the first one of the first consoles I ever owned that like you said I bought with my own money and I just owned and I when I was in high school I would be I just played these games over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again. same yeah like I've you know even though the RPGs and it took hours I I'd, I'd play them again and again and you know try to find secrets or just experience the story because back then you couldn't just go to YouTube and watch a cutscene you had to play the whole thing again maybe you know if you had space on your memory card your precious precious space maybe save before a cinema so you can go back to it whenever you wanted but that was hard 
I, I can't remember the number of times I beat Final Fantasy VII. I'm, uh, God, it must have been so many. I got it down yeah. to a science. I could beat it in 20 hours. Oh, good for you. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And also, I would be playing Final Fantasy VIII, and I would swap over to the line of sitcoms that were playing from, like, 5 to 6.30. So it would <laughs> always go, The Simpsons, from 5 to 6. And then at 6, they would have news radio, and at 6.30, they'd have Seinfeld. And so every time I got to a point where I needed to draw spells, I'd just swap over to whatever those shows were and just watch them <laughs> while hitting the, the circle button. That's pretty great, actually. I like that. <laughs> and of course, um, Valkyrie Profile, which I discovered and bought at launch and ended up completely adoring. Uh, you know, like it, it's definitely had a huge impact on my understanding of RPGs and... It was the beginning of the mainstreaming of JRPGs and of anime in so many ways. Because people, maybe who picked up, um, maybe people who picked up a PlayStation and really enjoyed Final Fantasy VII were much more apt to pick up a show like Evangelion or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think it can be understated really the impact that the the PlayStation ended up having on RPG history. I mean. It certainly represented the huge rupture between Square and Nintendo, a rupture that in many ways has never really been, you know, fixed, right? I mean... Yeah, I feel like it was never really fixed until when they brought Cloud into Smash. Something just felt like it was whole again after that. I mean, but even then, uh, I mean, so many of their biggest games are on PS4, right? That's true, yeah. I mean, they ported, they brought... And they, they brought, like, Final Fantasy seven eight and 9 and, like, various other games onto the Nintendo Switch, but after they were on PS4. Yeah, it would, they were on PS4 for a long time before they finally came to Switch. Yeah, so to some extent, uh, there will be never a time again where Square and so Square, Nintendo is the main Square platform, but that's because Square mm-hmm. just became a different company. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Times. Yeah, and honestly, like, while... I mean, you just can't talk about the PlayStation without talking about Square forever because they were such a prominent part of the PlayStation's history. But it was also kind of the beginning of Square's downfall in some ways because it taught maybe Square all of the wrong lessons about how to <laughs> what RPG yes. should be. Yeah, like just kind of really getting heavy into the cinema, those uh, cinematics and uh, maybe at the expense of gameplay once in a while. Yeah, I, I think so. And... It also kind of started it down the path of ruin because, I mean, that this was around the time that they went so all in on CG cutscenes that they thought that they could make a movie studio. Oh, yeah. And uh, we all know what happened there. Yeah. No, I know. And But I mean, they were really cranking those Final Fantasies out. I mean, they were cranking them out one or two per year. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Yeah, like when Final Fantasy VII proved to be a hit, they're like, oh, we're working on 8, 9, and 10. I was like, wow, guys, are you sure you didn't want to slow down a bit? I mean, even the Super Nintendo games had a little more space than that. So what do you think of the PlayStation? Do you? I'm sure you have fond memories of the PlayStation. Was there an RPG that we missed? There probably was, because God knows, Nadia, there were so many RPGs that came out on the original PlayStation. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to hear about a couple that we missed, and we apologize in advance, but it's just like, this is already quite a long episode. I mean, I think that just the import scene alone probably deserves its yes. own podcast. I mean, yeah, there was, pretty much. There were so many licensed RPGs that came out over in Japan that never saw the light of day over here. But, you know, I'm curious to hear what you loved about the PlayStation. But in the meantime, um, 
That is the PlayStation Console RPG Quest. Happy 25th anniversary to the PlayStation. I mean, a console that helped change uh, games in so many different ways. All right, thanks for listening to our console RPG quest for the PlayStation. As always, let's uh, dive a little bit into your responses in the mailbag. And last week we had a dicebreaker on the show to talk about the state of Dungeons and Dragons. And that site is now live, so you should go and check it out. And you should also check out their YouTube channel and whatnot. Matcom says, Board gaming is alive and well where I live, and I think the improving quality of game cafes and busy downtowns is added to the sense of it being a more mainstream hobby. I run a modest meetup group with a Star Trek focus that typically branches into a lot of different activities and genres, but gaming is a regular fixture and by far the most fun in terms of the social experience. If you're not into clubs or bars, it's a great way to do something more constructive than that can still be a late night activity. Thanks, by the way, to Acts of the, Act of the Blood God for indirectly being responsible for my successful group. Cat's plug for Mission Law got me started listening to the podcast and then looking for a local Trek meetup, which I decided to start up when I found it didn't exist. Hey, there you go. Yeah, that's very nice. Bringing people together. (laughs) As it should. I think uh, board games is such a natural for RPG fans because, I mean, so many RPG fans would like tabletop RPGs and vice versa. And if you like tabletop RPGs, probably going to enjoy playing board games as well. Yeah, there's actually uh, a couple places now in Toronto called Snakes and Lattes, which is uh, kind of famous for its its board game scene. Even before, it, you know, now it's a little more hip to be into board games, but uh, it's been around for quite a long time. Satellite of Love says, wait, people thought an Etrian Odyssey looking dark, darkest dungeon ass missed over wasn't grognard as hell? Light and heal <laughs> will never die. And as somebody reminded me, Mistover is in fact available on the Nintendo Switch, so you can totally go play it if you want. Oh, yeah convenience all in one spot i think mike was playing it and saying that he was enjoying it oh that's cool question for the high priestess of the blood god any hope in hell that i can just pay to upgrade my copy of persona 5 to royal or is it a standalone title only it's a standalone title it's standalone sorry yeah um that's always going to be a controversial thing in this day and age of, of dlc I will say that Persona 4 uh, and Persona 4 Golden is such a leap that I would say is worth paying for that extra, like, you know, just to have a whole new game with Golden. But I'm, I'm kind of curious to see where Persona 5 goes with that. And Barry says, I want to say we really liked hearing the Blood God talk about tabletop RPGs with your guest Sarah. It would be great to hear the Blood God talk more about tabletop RPGs. Surely it would come up again around the release of Baldur's Gate 3 and Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2 next year. Thanks again to you and Nadia and the U.S. Gamers staff. Yeah, yeah, I think we can totally go back to tabletop RPGs. We should get Shivaman here because... Oh, yeah. He plays a lot of magic these days, but uh, that guy, like, he knows his Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, does he? He's one of the only people I can really talk Dragonlance about, like, with, because he's huge, like, he's really, really huge into Dragonlance, and if I ever have a question about the lore, I just ask him. (laughs) You talk about somebody who's super into... Uh, it's somebody who's super into Final Fantasy Tactics. We did the mm. Final Fantasy Tactics Retronauts together. And oh my God, like he got so deep into that game in a way that I couldn't even fathom. Like, I think he said that he's never actually finished the game. He just has it running forever. And he just yeah, wants that's... to mess around with different builds. Yeah, it was, And it's completely insane, the builds and everything that he was coming up with. 
I believe it. Um, he's also actually happens to be huge into Suikoden too, to the point that um, when we did Festivus over at uh, Parish's forums back in the day, uh, someone got him. They basically blew up the Suikoden 2 cover and got him that framed for him. And it was just like, he was the envy that year because that was a gorgeous gift. The envy. <laughs> I, I still envy it. I covet that Suikoden 2 framed photo. Yeah. So, I mean, shout out to Shivam, who's a good person. In the meantime, yes. Axe of Blood God, US Camera Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. And of course, follow me and Nadia. I'm at the underscore Capot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. We're coming to the end of the year. It's time for our end of the year podcast, Nadia, which I think yes. will probably get started in earnest. I mean, next week. Um, I'm actually going to be in England next week, but so I, I'm going to have to figure how, out how things are going to go. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, are you going to be able to podcast? Because well, you're going to be, you know, just five just five hours ahead of me. That's not too bad. But we are going to do a look back on the entire year, and then we are going to do a recap of the year, concluding with the best RPG of 2019 as selected by Axel the Blood God. So please look forward to that. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening, and until next time, happy adventuring.